What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 49, From One Era to Another. In this episode, the end of the 12th dynasty comes ever nearer, and the royal household teeters somewhere between stability and collapse. Meanwhile, foreigners from the lands of Palestine continue to migrate into the kingdom. We explore their culture, their origins, and their habits. This episode is brought to you by Stephen, and thanks for his generous contribution to the podcast's running costs. Thank you, Stephen. And to all our listeners, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your fantastic support. As this episode goes to air, we are about to hit 500,000 downloads, a far greater success than I could have ever hoped. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. The year is now 1799 BCE, and Ni Matre Amenemhat III is in the last months of his life. He is old, he is ailing, but his power remains secure, thanks to the presence of a firm succession in the form of an adopted son, Ma'a Herure Amenemhat IV. I say adopted because Ma'a Herure, whose name means Ray is justified, was probably not born of the king's lineage. His mother, Hetepti, is only known by one title, the king's mother. She is never referred to as a royal wife, and there is no record of her before Ma'a Herure shows up in the dynasty. Overall, evidence suggests that any blood link between Amenemhat III and his new successor was very slim. This is going to have big consequences in a few short years. The old king took Ma'a Herure on as a co-regent, which probably lasted about a year or so, before the elder died in 1798 BCE. His death, in many ways, represents the end of a period of political stability that had lasted nearly 200 years. From here on out, things begin to get rocky. Well, sort of rocky, anyway. At first, they seemed fine. Ma'aherere took power as a Menemhat IV, and immediately took over the projects his adopted father had left behind. He continued building and decoration work in the Fayum, where the temple of Medinet Mahdi was at last completed. His contributions here suggest that Ma'aherure was especially concerned with his own legitimacy. The reason I say this is because the new king made a very unusual decision in the decoration of this temple. Rather than complete a room in his own name, he split the decoration of the central hall into east and west. On the west side, the walls and columns, Amenemhat III is the only king on show. But in the east, 
It's all Ma'ahirure. Now, it seems pretty unlikely that Amenemhat III survived to only decorate one side of the building before he died. What is more likely is that when the old king died, Ma'ahirure decided on the new scheme to simultaneously honour his father and make his own contribution to the temple. The clue, you see, is in the direction. By putting Amenemhat III on the west wall, towards the setting sun, the old king is being treated more as Osiris, ruler of the underworld, than a living king. But Ma'aherure in the east is very much the rising sun, the youthful, vigorous ruler of the earthly realm. It's all very pomp and circumstance, but it tells us that Ma'aherure wanted to secure the connection between himself and his predecessor. If, as we suspect, he was not the actual son of Amenemhat III, this all makes a lot more sense. Essentially, Ma'aherure needed to bulk up his profile, and he needed to do it quickly. With this in mind, you might be surprised to learn that apart from Medinet Mahdi, there was very little other evidence for Ma'aherure's architectural program. Over nine years of rule, he left only the one temple complex in the Fayum, and the scanty remains of a small pyramid near Saqqara. Apart from this, well, that's it. It's hard to understand this. As we will see, the royal household is still very wealthy, and the country is not suffering from any noteworthy economic problems. In fact, while the temple at Medinet Mahdi was being built and decorated, the king was able to turn his attention to other, more international affairs. Expeditions were sent to the Sinai, to Punt, and, most importantly, to Lebanon. Hardly seems like the sort of behaviour you'd expect in a period when the king was consciously absent from the architectural landscape of the country. But maybe the simple answer is that we overvalue the importance of architecture in some periods of Egyptian history. Sure, there are periods where it's seriously important, like the Pyramid Age or the 18th Dynasty. But is it really that hard to imagine periods, even generations or centuries, in which such projects were simply not the most important priority? Maybe Ma'aherure had other projects that he valued more, and maybe those were his expeditions. Because while he isn't very well attested in surviving architecture, Amenemhat IV is well attested in a lot of places outside of Egypt. As far as we can tell, the king didn't prioritise the construction of new monuments, because he wanted to connect with lands beyond Egypt. And for this, he was willing to put that fabulous Middle Kingdom wealth to good use. On the coast of modern-day Lebanon, about halfway between Beirut and Tripoli, is the city of Byblos. We've met Byblos before. It became a vassal of Egypt under Sinusaret III, and the people of Byblos appeared among the traditional enemies of Egypt, referenced in those execration texts we saw in episode 46. Ma'aherure preserved royal relationships with Byblos, and at some point he sent, or one of his officials sent, a golden plaque to the city. It was a plaque representing the king before the creator god, Atum, and it is a gorgeous piece of work. Not the finest craftsmanship ever, but it has, I don't know, personality. If you check the image on our website, you'll see what I mean. The figures are vibrant, elegant, and beautiful in their slightly rough way as Ma'aherure offers a jar of ointment to the god, both of them smiling. The bigger question is, why is this here? The most likely answer is that the king wanted something from Byblos, something he could not get elsewhere. 
Byblos was useful to the Egyptians for a variety of exotic items that they could not easily acquire, and the best of these were aromatic oils and cedar wood. For my money, it was these that the king wanted. Oil in particular is likely because the plaque itself shows the king offering such oils to Artum. If you are searching for an item in particular, and want to offer art in return, why not link the two up and make the trade sacred as well as commercial? If this was the case, then the next question is what Ma'aherure wanted the oil for. Well, we may have an answer for that too. On the coast of the Red Sea, there was a harbour which the kings of Dynasty Twelve used to launch expeditions to the Sinai, and, more importantly, to Punt. It was Punt that Ma'aherure wanted the oil for. In year 8 of his reign, about 1790 BCE, a royal scribe named Jedi came to the Red Sea Harbour on behalf of the king. His destination was the legendary country of Punt, and when he returned, he brought back treasures. Treasures which he recorded on a wooden box, a box that was found in 2006. Jedi's inscriptions attested to the treasures he had brought back, and were kind enough to specifically mention the ruling king, Ma'aherure. The result of Jedi's work is that archaeologists excavating at this site can now establish a consistent record of expeditions sent into the Red Sea for the entire 12th dynasty up to this point. Which is pretty rare in this field of history, so thank you Jedi. This port is pretty far south of the Sinai Peninsula, but it may have been the launching point for the continuing series of Sinai expeditions, which Ma'aherure ordered. The Sinai has been the destination du jour for the 12th dynasty rulers, and in this period there is no difference. Teams of labourers still left the Nile Valley, bound for the copper mines and trading ports operating on a grand scale in this era, and the Red Sea must have been very busy with the ships travelling back and forth to these areas. Back in the home country, Ma'aherure was also involved in the gems business, sending a small expedition south to the amethyst mines in the eastern desert. The site in question is a place called Wadi al-Hudi, and it is a place that has quickly rocketed to the top of my ideal locations to visit within Egypt. The amethyst mine of Wadi al-Hudi was home to about 100 or 150 people, who probably came and went on a roughly seasonal basis. They lived in a pair of stone-walled settlements, which were not quite as fortified as those great bastions in Nubia, but would do well enough to protect their houses from locals or from unexpected floods. So, not the worst place to spend your time. They were working to extract amethyst, a type of purple-coloured quartz, very valuable in jewellery. The Egyptians used it for this, and for small statues, of beautiful characters. I have put some images on our website. Egyptian amethyst could travel surprisingly long distances, winding up in Lebanon, Syria, and even the Isle of Crete, just south of Greece. In this sense, amethyst can be seen as one of the markers of the 12th dynasty's wealth, and their international visibility. With Egyptian gemstones showing up far outside their political realm, more and more people became aware of the civilization living in the Nile Valley. As we will see soon, this wealth has its own consequences. 
Amethyst is, to my mind, extremely beautiful as far as gemstones go. I confess, though, I don't have much of a magpie tendency. It is translucent, reflective, and rich in colour. Not hard to see why the ancients appreciated it so much. They mined it at the Wadi al-Hudi for centuries, from the Old Kingdom, right through until the period when the mines abruptly dried up, sometime around the end of the Twelfth Dynasty. Now that is an interesting event, which has not been explored by any historian that I'm aware of. Archaeologists are eager to investigate, analyse and document the various minerals, mines and settlements of Egyptian expeditions, but very few have looked any further into its economic importance. For the record, I officially call dibs. Fortunately for Ma'a Herure, the amethyst mines were not his only source of wealth. The copper mines of Sinai were still extremely lucrative, and the fortresses of Nubia allowed the Egyptians to continue mining gold. This was probably the source of the golden plaque which I mentioned earlier, which made its way all the way to Byblos. Byblos itself was the other major point of interest for the king. As an Egyptian vassal, the princes considered Egypt their political and cultural superior, so it is no surprise that objects of the 12th dynasty are extremely common in this region. Ma'aherure was able to continue this trend, with that lovely golden plaque and a sphinx statue both showing up in the region. The commercial opportunities were, like I've said, vast, and even if the amethyst mines were beginning to dry up, Lebanon was still a very lucrative region from which the Egyptians could hoard wealth. They were lucky to do so, for even in this period of international communication and exploitation, the Egyptians still counted the Beblites among their traditional enemies. But that seems almost ridiculous. Egyptians were travelling as far afield as Punt, Crete, Cyprus, which they called Alashia, and the whole of the Levant. Why count such a settled, tame, and friendly community as one of your traditional enemies? For my money, this was a lingering holdover from that period when Egypt had been so much more insular. Now they were entering a new era, and from 1800 BCE, Egypt is constantly, constantly involved with foreigners on a political, cultural, religious, and commercial scale. Nowhere is this more clear than in the social makeup of Egypt's eastern delta, where throughout the 12th dynasty, foreigners had been settling in increasing numbers. Over the next few decades, these would become so influential that they actually disrupted the political structure of the kingdom itself. So what better time to take a break and chat about these foreigners, and the culture from which they emerged? The foreigners in question were a group commonly known as Canaanites. Canaan is an old term, encompassing the areas of Israel, Palestine, Gaza, West Jordan, Lebanon, and South Syria. Basically, the melting pot of the Near East, through which populations, religions, armies, and traders have moved since the very beginning of human history. To the ancients, this land was known as Kina'ana, and its inhabitants as Kina'anum, for convenience, I'm just going to stick with the names Canaan and Canaanite, but if you're fond of the more ancient names, feel free to imagine Kina'anum instead. Now, in 1780 BCE, the peoples of Canaan were not unified in any one political or military state, but they did share a common material culture and set of religious beliefs. 
They lived in small settlements, which were occasionally walled with fortifications. But they also had an unusual habit of periodically abandoning these settlements, sometimes for centuries at a time. After a few generations, another population would move in, but archaeological records tell us that the Canaanites were not fond of staying in one place over too many years. This might have had something to do with fertility and agricultural trends, and it might have had something to do with that lack of political or military unity. The absence of a centralised political state in a region where populations came and went on a regular basis would make Canaan a far more unstable area than Egypt. In such circumstances, it's not hard to imagine that, on occasion, word of a new threat or an enemy raid of crops and livestock would force a group to move on in search of a new home. Does this wandering mean they were unsophisticated? Absolutely not. It just means that our archaeological record is a bit more unsettled than we're used to. In some ways, that's more interesting, and it's hard to hold such trends against the Canaanites, considering just how unsettled this region has been since, well, forever. Canaanites in the 1700s were skilled potters, weapon makers, and winemakers. They had been good at winemaking for a long time. In fact, it is Canaanite wine jars which show up in the tomb at Abydos belonging to King Scorpion of Dynasty Zero, some 1400 years earlier. So although the Canaanites were not building kingdoms or monuments, they were a well-established people with a serious pedigree in material culture. The consistency of the material culture in Canaan confirms for archaeologists that even though there was no political unity, the inhabitants of this land shared many of the same tools and possessions. And that is a form of unity, even if it didn't translate to the sort of power which might have kept them safe from the Egyptians. That being said, this is a period in which fortifications begin to show up for the first time. These have been observed at several sites, and the overall picture is that around the time the 12th dynasty was ruling, the Canaanites were taking care to begin fortifying their scattered settlements, and protect themselves against attack. Are the two connected? Well, that's pretty unlikely, but it's not impossible. See, the Egyptian king Zenusaret III had sent troops to Canaan when the city of Byblos got involved in a dispute. In order to maintain the status quo, the Egyptians seem to have taken direct control of Byblos, as I've mentioned. So the Egyptians were travelling pretty far north into Canaan. For settlements near the coast, that would be a good incentive to look to their safety. But what about those settlements which are far from the coast, and unlikely to be hit by Egyptian interference? Why would they also fortify? Well, apart from the obvious reason, because all of their neighbours were doing it, there's also the fact that the Egyptians were not the only powerful state in the region. By the time that Amenemhat III died, leaving the throne for Ma'aherure, the land of Canaan was also neighbour to a powerful state rising in the east. This state was none other than the legendary Babylon of Hammurabi. Hammurabi is best known as the creator of the world's first documented code of laws, a series of nearly 300 legal codes covering matters such as inheritance, commercial contracts, wages, slavery, sexual behaviour, paternity, and, most importantly, the idea that an individual was innocent until proven guilty, 
and that both parties in a dispute had the right to present their evidence before a judgment was made. Pretty bold stuff for the time, and a far cry ahead of Egypt's own legal system, which, in the few places where it survived, seems to have been based mostly on a mixture of the way things had always been done, and what the king decreed. So good for you, Hammurabi. I won't go into Hammurabi's code in any more detail, but I have provided a link to the text on our website. If you are interested in reading it, I recommend it. It's great. Hammurabi's Babylonian kingdom had, around the 1780s, taken control of the whole region of Mesopotamia, which is the land between rivers that we call Iraq. To do this, Hammurabi's soldiers had swept aside the small kingdom of Assyria and replaced its power with their own. The result was that Mesopotamia, which had been a fabulously wealthy region already, was now politically united. The rise of Assyria and Babylonia cannot have been lost on the Canaanites. Letters sent between cities in Assyria itself make reference to the Canaanites, showing that these people knew about the region and its disparate, scattered groups. In fact, the letter I'm referencing refers to two groups in Canaan, Canaanites and brigands. If that doesn't tell you something about how the Assyrians perceived this region, well, let's just say it was a good time for the local Canaanites to think about their defences. To prove how seriously the Canaanites took the matter of protection, we only need to look at the fact that they didn't just fortify their cities, they fortified their temples as well. On the one hand, there's good sense for that. If you're going to protect your town, why not fortify the most sacred space within that town? And considering how important temples were to the economic and social life of a community, more on that in future episodes, it's little wonder that these buildings were a top priority for protection. But the overall trend suggests that these peoples were becoming very aware that they were a little people among great powers. Egypt had been flexing its military and economic muscle in Byblos, and word of Assyria's fall to Babylon must have given many town leaders cause for alarm. What if Hammurabi's troops showed up in Syria next? Well, fortunately for them, the troops of Babylon never left the Mesopotamian region, and despite their frequent habit of abandoning towns and cities, the Canaanites seem to have made it through this period relatively unscathed. Byblos got its Egyptian overlord, of course, but the rest of the country seems to have been safe and sound. Now, all this is very useful to know, but it doesn't tell us why these Canaanites were moving to northeastern Egypt at the end of the 12th dynasty. There are many possible reasons for this general movement. Taken from the Canaanite perspective, the reason might have been a positive attraction towards Egypt's wealth and strength. Or there may have been a negative pull, as Egyptian expeditions into Sinai and Gaza brought back captives. Then there's the neutral one. As Egyptian influence spread into Canaan, locals naturally gravitated towards new lands as their own settlements failed to satisfy their needs. This last option would fit pretty well with that well-established habit of building a settlement, living there for five or six generations, and then suddenly abandoning it. Maybe some Canaanite groups liked to move from time to time, rather like the stereotype of the Gypsy Roma today. Or maybe this was a combination of all three, or none of them. We simply do not know. What we do know is that the Canaanites moved into Egypt's delta in greater numbers, particularly at a site called Tel el-Daba, or, in the ancient name, Avaris. 
A virus shows a massive concentration of Canaanite peoples from the early 12th dynasty onwards, and it only grew as time went by. Their pottery became more and more common, their housing became more and more visible, and they eventually took over the local sanctuaries and imported some of their own religious customs. Customs like offering pits, where burnt offerings were ritually buried under the floor of a sanctuary. This enriched the sacred space, and counted as a potent offering to the gods of the Canaanite people. Which brings me to the last point about these people and their customs, their religion. Traces of early Canaanite religion are few, but we have some ideas about their pantheon. There was El, the creator god, and his consort Asherah, the mother. Asherah is associated firstly with reproductive power, but also with its companion, eroticism. In this sense, she is similar to the Egyptian Hathor, and both Hathor and Asherah were frequently associated with the lioness. Below El and Asherah, there were Baal and Anat, god and goddess of storms and hunting, respectively. Baal would come to be associated with Seth, but Anat is probably closer to the goddess Neith, rather than Seth's sister, Nephthys. Baal and Anat were the centre of a mythological drama, commonly called the Baal Cycle, in which Baal was murdered by the god of dryness, Mot. But Anat retaliated, and brought Mot down, thus freeing her brother from the afterlife. The god Baal resumed his rule, and the land was restored to its proper balance. This myth has been interpreted as a story about the occasional periods of drought that swept the ancient world. Mot, as death or dryness, represents the times when the rains did not come, and the land became parched. Only when he was defeated by the huntress could Baal return, and in his thundering bring the nourishing rains once more. You might have noticed that this Canaanite myth shares some common elements with an Egyptian story, just told in a different way with different gods. The slaying of Baal is similar to that which befell Osiris, and just like in the Osiris tale, it was up to the god's sister to restore the balance and allow fertility to return. But that is where the similarities end, for Baal is closer to Seth than he is to Osiris, and the restoration of balanced order does not depend on the actions of a king like Horus, but on the actions of Anat, the huntress. And instead of a showdown between Horus and Seth, with the council of gods choosing in favour of Horus, you just have Anat killing Mot and restoring order. Much more straightforward, even if some high-minded scholars would call this simple. Canaanite religion was anything but simple. The problem is we just don't know that much about it yet. The region of Canaan is so difficult to excavate for any long period of time, and so divided between different nations, that gathering a consistent, overarching view of their religious practices is extremely difficult. What we do know is that temples were traditionally associated with kings, just like in Egypt. As the leaders of their communities, and directors of how to use surplus goods, kings had the unique power to commission or enact decisions. This meant that in the Canaanite political scene, the king was treated or represented as the benefactor of all people the patron of all temples. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's pretty much exactly like the Egyptian version, and many other ancient societies as well. The reason I single out Egypt so specifically, is that the Canaanites seem to have borrowed many of their iconographical tropes from Egypt itself. For instance, small mud seals used to stopper jars or seal documents 
show powerful figures seated on thrones, wearing native Canaanite dress. That's a pretty standard representation for any ruler. But these ones sit behind symbols that are essentially Egyptian hieroglyphs for powerful words. Words like nefer or beautiful, which was used as part of an Egyptian king's epithets. Or the cobra goddess Wajet, who shows up on a number of small items. Finally, the word for gold, nebut, shows up hovering over the head of a Canaanite leader. I've provided some images of these seals on the website. These little cross-cultural touches remind us just how far ideas could travel in the ancient world. We are used to thinking of antiquity as a series of disconnected states, but the truth is they were communicating constantly in different ways. Some of these were high-level state affairs, like Sinusaret taking over Byblos. But others were tiny little day-to-day things, like a craftsman deciding to put an Egyptian word in front of the image he was making of a prince. To make a long story short, Canaan was full of little Egyptianisms that existed side by side with their own native ideas. These Egyptianisms filtered out from the Nile Valley, where they were picked up by locals, locals who subsequently brought them back to Egypt when they began settling in the delta. By the time that Amenemhat IV died in 1790 BCE, the community of Avaris and the northeastern delta in general contained a thriving and significant population of Canaanites. These people came from a land rich in material, religious and cultural heritage, and their influence would only grow stronger over the coming decades.